The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Life in Exile, a study of the book of 1 Peter. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us uh, for, you know, the last few months, we've been working our way through 1 Peter, which is uh, the Apostle Peter's first letter that he wrote uh, to a group of Christians, sort of not necessarily unknown, but sort of a broad demographic of people who were trying to make their way through life as faithful Christians, but in a culture that is pretty hostile toward them, at least maybe not physically, but in a sense they've been socially marginalized, they've been pushed out to the, in- at the fringes, they have been sort of dis- um, disengaged from the rest of the culture, and so we are actually on the last leg here. So we've got this Sunday and next Sunday, and then we are done with 1 Peter, and then we'll be heading into this new sermon series that I'm pretty excited about called Recalibrate, Getting Back to the Roots of Sacred City Church, our DNI, our identities, our rhythms, and what it looks like to create a gospel culture, one that makes disciples who makes disciples. And, and so what, what happens here as we come to our passage in First Peter, we come to sort of a, an organizational passage. Well, in, in the sense that we're talking about church leadership. And honestly, I was hoping that uh, I, this would fall on a week where I would be out of the pulpit, right? I was hoping Ra would actually be here this week, but it didn't work out that way. I was trying to avoid it in a sense. Not, not because this passage is difficult or, or extremely confusing, but because this is a passage that usually comes with some extra baggage for most people. Right? This is a passage that, that when you look at it at face value, it can rub you the wrong way. And for me to teach this might seem or come across as a bit of self-serving. See, this is because many of us have had experiences with church leadership that have left us jaded. And in many cases, rightly so. In the seven years of my ministry, I've heard of countless stories of of people leaving churches because of the leadership. And that's not a wrong thing. In fact, that's one of the most scriptural reasons why you would leave a church for unqualified, uh, unbiblical church leadership. People have been hurt. They feel used. They feel like they've been leveraged or neglected, ignored or silenced or burned or, or taken advantage of. And it leaves them wounded. And oftentimes these wounds leave us reluctant to trust leadership, to respect it, let alone be subject to as verse five will command. What happens is we, when we're in this, in this state, we keep church leadership at an arm's length. We, we, we withhold ourselves. We, we 
sort of resent leadership or, or even rebel. Sometimes it's, it's a vocal rebellion or sometimes it's a silent, reserved, internal rebellion. We become dismissive. And for, for some people, the, the feeling of hurt is so intense it's so much to bear that they actually leave a church in search of a, of a better church with different church leadership. And like I said, that is not necessarily wrong, but the wounds is there. And as we go from church to church, we carry with us this sense of baggage, this hurt from previous church leadership. And so what happens is we, we project those hurts onto a new pastor. We tend to have the same posture. We, 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 we're skeptical of them. And so our jaded past starts this new pastor at a deficit. Unknowingly, this pastor has the objective of proving to you that he's different. And I'm not saying I necessarily feel this, but this is a tendency that we have if you survey churches all over. Now for other people, they don't, they don't give another church a shot, Right? They've been hurt, they've been wounded in pretty significant ways and say, you know what, this, this Jesus thing, this church thing isn't for me. They, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They lump all pastors together. They, they might say, you know what, I don't need a church. I don't need a pastor to follow Jesus. And so they in, adopt this sort of individualistic Christianity where they're a, a sort of rogue Christian. They say the, the problem with the church is the, the formalities, the structure, the leadership, the, the power that gets twisted and misused. And that is certainly, certainly that is a problem. But what happens is it makes church appealing. I have many friends who are like this. And some of you might fall on this spectrum too from being skeptical or, or rebellion or even just maybe this is your first time in a church in a long time. See, and even as a pastor, I, like you, harbor skepticism. Being in a different church last week, right, I, I felt that. I was sitting there in the church service looking at this pastor. I'm like, what's this guy about? Like, I, I, should, I should give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm the pastor. I know exactly what he's, he's after, right, if he's gospel-centered and, and devoted to preaching the Bible. See, but even as a pastor, I start to wonder, like, how much of this is in me, right? The twisted motives, the, the capacity to hurt or to wound someone, whether it be intentional or unintentional. And I'm sure if you were to survey my ministry, you'd find several different occasions where I've failed, right? where I've hurt someone, where I've made big mistakes, caused wounds, now, the answer to this isn't to do away with leadership. See, leadership is absolutely necessary. See, without leadership, every booster club, every club, every city council, every fan club, every nonprofit, profit, every corporate entity would fail because anytime there are humans assembled together, there has to be some sort of leadership. Otherwise, there's never direction forward. And the same is true with the church. There has to be leadership in place in order for the church to thrive, to be faithful to the calling that Jesus has placed on the church. And so the question is, what kind of leadership is this? What does godly church leadership look like? Who is it? What do they do? And rather than allowing modern practice and, and maybe the corporate world to influence what leadership looks like in the church, what we are going to do is go to God's word and see what God says, what, what church leadership is meant to look like. 
And today's passage brings us to a point where we see the framework for Christian leadership. Now, for some of us, this is going to be new information. Some of this is going to be pretty radical, right? This might completely redefine and reshape what we think it's like or what church leadership looks like. And I think that what Peter lays out today is so appealing, right? The type of church leadership, the caliber of leaders and, and their devotion to the church is so appealing that I think that it has, has the ability to disarm those who are standoffish and skeptical, those who are cynical towards leadership and, and allow us, allow those people to grow in trust and to joyfully come under the leadership that God has, has appointed in the church to lead the church in the gospel, in community, and on mission. You might be thinking, this is the point where it starts to seem a little bit self-serving, right? Because this is like, uh, Sam, aren't you, aren't you talking about yourself here? But you'll notice as we go through this passage today that, that four of our verses, four of the five verses are directed at elders and their responsibility and only one, actually only half of one, is specifically directed toward members of the church. So if there is anyone who walks away convicted from today's sermon, it should be me. It should be me who is falling on my face in repentance and asking for forgiveness because this is a high calling for church leaders, and to be part of a church. And so rather than skip over this, because it is primarily directed at me, I think this is essential for us as a church to be keyed in on what kind of leadership God is calling the church to. And here's why. I've got four reasons for you. I'm gonna move through these quickly. One, I believe that God has placed men in this room who are aspiring to the office of elder. And this is a noble thing. This is a noble thing for men to pursue the office of elder. One of my hopes, I shared this a couple weeks ago, one of my hopes in 2018 is that we can get a group of men who say, you know what, I might not be quite there yet to be an elder, but I have a desire to, to carry that burden someday. And so I have a desire to start the elder development process with three or four men in this room to shoulder this load with me, to pastor, to, to lead, and to shepherd God's church alongside of me. And so this gives exposure Right? This is sort of a call to men to, to come alongside of me. If you are interested in this, if you even have a, a remote desire, please come talk to me. We, or if you know somebody who's like, you know what, they probably wouldn't nominate themselves for this, uh, and so let me, let me nominate for them. You can, anybody can come to me and say, hey, I think this person should be in the elder development process. And so bring it on, right? There's an elder, elder development packet at the bookstore. Uh, if you are interested, you can get more information there. So that's the first reason. Second, I think it is helpful for you as the church to understand what my job is as your pastor and whatever elders happen to come along in the future and to see what happens as a pastor beyond 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It's good for you to know what I'm paid to do, what my primary responsibilities are, what my priorities are, and how I should be doing these things. I don't get to teach on this very often, and, and I don't really care to, but this is a great opportunity for you to kind of see into to my life and the calling that God has put upon me and every other pastor across the globe. Now three, third reason is that this actually piggybacks off of First uh, Peter 4.19, which... Uh, 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 Rob left us off last week. last week. I think I have it up on the screen. This is what it says. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing 
good. And trust in your soul to God includes, as we'll see today, coming under godly leadership. See, being a rogue Christian, being somebody who habitually goes from church to church, refusing leadership, will impair your walk with Jesus. Now, I realize that trusting leadership is difficult. Trusting God, right? The perfect, good, great God is a hard thing for anybody to do, let alone to come other flawed leadership. It's, it's a difficult thing. But every Christian is called to this. This is why church membership is so important for us because here it, it identifies for you who your leadership is. Right? Who, and for me, as your leader or other leaders that come along, who is responsible for your soul? So this is part of entrusting your soul to God. And the fourth reason is that, that makes this so important for us to study and what makes leadership necessary in the church is the fact that the church is composed of sufferers. Every single person in this room knows suffering, whether it physically, socially, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and it's on varied degrees. And it, and it fluctuates in time. And what you realize when you're in a season of suffering, it is easy to become despondent. It's easy to get overwhelmed by that, and it's easy to sort of lose your way. And so in, in this time of suffering, and in the tension of suffering, it is essential for leadership to be present, to know the difficulty of suffering, but then, but then to direct people back to Jesus, to point them toward the hope that can sustain them. And this is Peter's priority. In fact, this is the, the segue that Peter makes from the fact that the church is made up of suffering, those who suffer according to God's will. And, and then the transition point is into this address to leaders. He says, so, that's how verse uh, one starts, and so I exhort the elders among you. And that, that word so means therefore, which means because of the suffering that's in the church, Peter wants to address the leaders because leadership matters. And the church's leadership, this is gonna be a little bit of teaching here. I'm gonna try to mix some teaching here because there's a lot of misconceptions that surround church leadership. The, the church's leadership structure is different than any other contemporary organizational structure. Colossians 1.19 tells us that Jesus is the head of the body, which is the church. And that is uh, in the sense of the church universal, meaning the church throughout time and all space, that Jesus is the head of that church. But Jesus is also the head of the local church, meaning that Jesus is the senior pastor of Sacred City Church, that he is the one at the helm. But Jesus, as the senior pastor, as the chief shepherd, he does not hoard authority or responsibility. He, as the chief shepherd, delegates to under-shepherds, which is, is basically what Peter's addresses today, to, to the under-shepherds and the elders of the church. And basically, there are three terms used in the New Testament to, to sort of describe or point back to the office of elder. Those three three. Um, terms are shepherd or, or pastor, elder, and bishop, which is also interchangeable with overseer. All of these three point to the same office, pointing to the same responsibilities, which are broken down into four simple ways. To feed, to lead, to know, and to protect the flock of God. 
Now, supporting these elders who are to lead the church and to, to take care of these four functions are the deacons who are men and women who are capable of overseeing and leading different different sets of ministries, specific ministries, right? For example, have a deacon of finance or a deacon of kids ministry. These are people who set the tone in the church by their servant leadership. But today we're talking about elders specifically. When Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. And so actually to help us understand who are elders? What are the qualifications for elders? Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually lays out in 1 Timothy 3 the qualifications for elders. And I'm just going to read this real quick. I think it's up on the screen. So you have a, a sort of framework of this. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now, this is, these qualifications here have a lot to do with a man's character, right? Of course, there are stipulations able to teach, respectable, live on mission, right? That's to be well thought of by outsiders. Basically, this man is, is, a, is a man worthy of replicating. He's not perfect. He's not Jesus. But as he pursues Christ-likeness, he is a, a humble, imperfect example of what it looks like to follow Christ. And much more can be said on this. In fact, we spend a whole session of this in our membership class sort of breaking down church leadership, what it looks like. And while these standards for elders are high, they do not call for perfection, right? If that were the case, if perfection were the standard, there would be no church leadership, none. See, even Peter, right, the rock, Jesus said he's the rock on whom he would build his church would be ill-equipped for such a job. Peter, in this passage that we have in, in chapter five, he, he calls himself a fellow elder, See, he would be unqualified for this responsibility. And let me, and this is true of every pastor. There is no one sufficient or qualified for the office of elder in their own account. Let me just show you real quick how Peter is disqualified here. If we look through, if we survey through the gospel accounts, Peter comes off conceited and puffed up, right? Those are two things that, the qualification for elder sort of bars. There is a stench of arrogance that comes with him. He seems to be a glory grabber when he asks Jesus that he could be the one at his right hand. Around, around Jesus, it seems like he's around Jesus for sort of self-serving reasons. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, he, seen, he comes off quarrelsome and violent. He cuts off a guard's ear. Later that night, he disowns Jesus. He, de he denies knowing him three times, abandoning his best friend. Does this sound like a guy that you want at the helm of a church? He seems pretty, pretty unstable, right? He's kind of like a train wreck, it looks like. 
By definition, just looking at Peter's life through the Gospels, he is a failure at this. He's underqualified for the office of elder. But here's the thing. God intervenes in his life in a way that is so profound. God pours his grace out on him and makes him fit for the office of elder. And you might say, well, where, where does that happen in the gospel, right? Where do we see this turning point for Peter? And actually it happens in a really incredible spot in, in John's gospel, in John 21. I've got this on the screen for you too, so you don't have to worry about flipping there. In John 21, this is after Jesus has been crucified, he's, he's been resurrected, and now he's spending time with his disciples before he ascends up into heaven. And remember how Peter denied him three times? Jesus sort of rewrites his story. This is where Peter experiences the grace of God in a way that completely changes his life. Chapter 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, that's Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him. And Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him a second time, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Peter said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. See, this is the turning point in Peter's life where he experiences the grace and love of Jesus in a profound way where his story is flipped. No longer is he this unstable, unpredictable train wreck of a man. He has been solidified in the grace of his resurrected Savior. And at this moment, Jesus is appointing Peter as an elder. And the thing that Jesus is looking for in Peter, of course, of course, all these other qualifications for elder will be in place, but the supreme thing that Jesus is looking for in Peter is if he loves Jesus above all things. And so it is with the leadership of any church that a pastor is to love Jesus above anything else, above his family, above, above his, his persona, his, his platform, his church, anything. That a pastor loves Jesus supremely. See, it's with a love for Jesus like that that all of the other qualifications fall into place. And without this love, a pastor is ineffective. Paul talks about it in other parts of Scripture that if there is not love, at best, a pastor is a clanging gong. See, the grace of God is at work and is working in, in present tense, working in pastor's life to love Jesus and to equip them and qualify them and keeps them qualified for the ministry. That's the only thing that sustains a pastor is the love of Jesus. And that is the power of the gospel, that God would save sinners, wretched men like Peter from the gospels, wretched men like me, and he would use crooked men to make straight lines. That's the power of God. using imperfect people who love a perfect Savior, imperfectly loving others, showing them to a perfect Jesus. 
And so it's with Peter's own commissioning from John chapter 21 where, where Peter is addressing his fellow elder here in Peter 5. He passes on the responsibility to the other elders who are clinging to the grace and the love of Jesus. Now, these are men who are willing to bear the burden of church leadership, right? not, not for their own gain, but for the sake and the vitality of Jesus' church. That These men are called. It's, it's an unavoidable, inescapable calling. When I was... When I was in pursuit of, of becoming a pastor, I had this feeling that I was made to be a pastor. I wasn't sure. I, I went through a couple of residencies, um, testing my calling. And, and every book that I read on pastoral leadership said this at some point. It said, if you can do anything else with your life, go do that. If you can go be a car salesman, which I was for a while, if you can go be a teacher, if you can go do, you know, be an engineer, go do that, serve God in that capacity because the calling of being a pastor is something that is unavoidable, inescapable. And so these are the men that Jesus calls, right? The, the men and women in leadership who have a burden for the church to serve and love, to lay their life down for the church. And so Peter here, going back to our passage, he exhorts the elders, and this word exhort, right, that's not necessarily used uh, in common language, but this is the idea of strongly urging. It's not like, it's not an authoritative punch. It's not a demand, but it, it, it's, a, it's a subtle, strong impression that's left on someone. And so Peter urges these men, not as an authoritarian, but as an equal, because he says, as a fellow elder. Now, this is a huge move of humility for Peter, in the world of the church, I mean, the Catholic church believes that Peter was the first pope. I mean, Peter was big man on campus, right? He and, he and Paul maybe are the two most prolific Christian men to ever influence humanity besides Jesus. He was an apostle. He was Jesus' best friend. And instead of pulling some sort of like authoritarian card and saying, here's my word, listen to me, he comes alongside and says, as a fellow elder, as somebody who's in the trenches alongside of you, let me urge you on. Now, Peter's not sitting in some sort of cozy executive office disconnected from the reality of the suffering and pain of the world and the church. Peter is there in the trenches. He is first and foremost a pastor. He says that, that he is right there in verse one. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter says he's a witness of Christ's suffering. Now, Peter is definitely an eyewitness. He was shoulder to shoulder with Jesus throughout his whole ministry Peter was likely, at least from a distance, to see Jesus be crucified. And so in that sense, he, he is a witness to the sufferings of Christ. But I, I think what Peter means in a more specific way, as a pastor, he has witnessed for himself what it is like to suffer for the name of Christ. He is a, a proclaimer of Christ's suffering. He speaks of what Christ has endured for sinners, the betrayal, the rejection, the humiliation, the crucifixion. And while he proclaims that as a witness, he's also seeing the church right before him. 
how the church suffers on account of Christ. He knows, he knows the sorrow and the grief and the pain that the church is encountering. But for Peter as a pastor, this the suffering does not dominate his vision. It's there, he sees it. But because of Christ, suffering gives way to glory. That's what Peter learned when he was following Jesus. He wanted glory without suffering, right? When Jesus said that he was, he was the, the, the suffering servant, that he was the Messiah who would suffer and die, Peter rebuked him and said, no, 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 Jesus, that's not for you. You're going straight to glory. And Jesus said, no, 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 get behind me, Satan, for the way that God has predestined for Jesus was the way of suffering into glory. And so it is true for the church. The way the church reaches glory is through the crucible. It's because of the cross that there is resurrection. See, in the midst of sorrow, Peter and pastors partake in the hope of glory that one day will be revealed when Jesus comes back to make all things new, restoring the church to its beauty and full joy, unwriting or actually rewriting everything that's sad to become untrue. So like Peter, in, in Peter's examples, elders, pastors must be present in the reality of suffering while keeping their eyes, their focus on the future glory that is to arrive. It's so easy for a pastor to hide out in the study, right? to befriend books, to gather information and sort of disperse it uh, for an hour on Sunday morning. But, but a, a pastor's work is in the trenches. It's to be shoulder to shoulder with the members of the church. But here's the thing, to live this way, to, to, to acknowledge the, the difficulties of suffering that the church faces, yet to, to sort of have your eyes set on glory is a difficult task. It is, it's a very tenacious place for a pastor to be, and so, or, or any member to be. And so therefore, Peter says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, when people hear this sheep-shepherd language, a lot of times it tends to be offensive, right? right who wants to be labeled as, as a sheep? Right? Even every, every cultural reference to sheep is sort of a derogatory or negative sort of reference, right? If you're, if you're sheepish, it means you're unsure about yourself. You're, you're, you're sort of, uh, you're, you're, you're skittish, Right? Or if you're labeled as a sheep, it means that you, you, follow, you follow blindly. Or, of course, if you step foot in a barn and you experience a sheep, you realize that they're kind of unintelligent. They smell a lot. They're, they're not a whole lot of fun to be around. They're, they're pretty stubborn. But this is not Scripture's intention when, when, when the, the motif of shepherd and flock is repeated. And it is throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, perhaps one of the most repeated motifs of, of Scripture. The word pastor is actually linked to the word pasture, right? Like where sheep would be out in the pasture. And so a pastor's job is very much reflective of that of, of, a, of a shepherd's. When you call me Pastor Sam, you might as well be calling me under shepherd Sam. <laughs> because the elder's job is so similar to that of a shepherd's, right? And, and I'll have you know, 
I grew up in a small rural town and like we had Boy Scouts or whatever, but that wasn't really cool. But 4-H was a thing. I don't know if you guys know what that is, y'all city slickers. But 4-H is like basically the, the Boy Scouts for farm kids. And, and you have these projects, you raise animals, you do this stuff. And my experience in 4-H also included raising sheep. And so maybe that helped me kind of transition to this pastoring gig. I don't know. But, um, but overseeing the flock, like a shepherd would oversee the flock, there's similarities here for a pastor's job, right? To, to feed, to lead, to know, and to protect, right? Those are the four main big umbrella responsibilities. And let me just rush through these real quick to help you understand the responsibilities of a pastor, like a shepherd is responsible for bringing his sheep to, to green, lush fields, a pastor is responsible for bringing the people of God to the evergreen and forever lush pastures of God's word to feast on regularly. In fact, this is the only source of sustenance for God's people. Matthew 4, Jesus quotes uh, Deuteronomy 8. He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from God. And so this means a pastor needs to know how to rightly handle the word of God. Now, there are a lot of people, especially, I'm not gonna say this of all pastors on TV, but a lot of pastors on TV neglect this capability of handling God's word effectively. They, they twist the teaching, either they, they create some sort of doomsday preparation, sort of end of the world is coming, the apocalypse is near, or, or they create this prosperity gospel that, that hooks people in, that offers feel-good feelings, but has no substance, is not actually the content that Scripture teaches. And so it's essential for the pastor to understand how to correctly handle, handle Scripture, which will always bring you to Jesus. See, every passage, whether Old Testament or New Testament, is about Jesus. Jesus said this on the road to Damascus when he had just been resurrected. He said the Old, the Old Testament, all the prophets, all of Scripture is meant to point to me. And so a pastor who handles God's word effectively is one who points to Jesus with everything. It ends with his finished work. And, and as we, we feed and feast on God's word, we see that God is on the move. God isn't stagnant. He is not settled. He is forever at work at his mission of making disciples who make disciples. And so a pastor is meant to lead the flock in this manner, to lead the church on mission, to know the times and know what to do. Just like in 1 Chronicles 2.32, right? Men who, who were engaged with the culture yet were faithful to God's word who knew how to interact without neglecting faithfulness. They, pastors, need to know how to lead the body together on God's mission as well as a sort of individual level, right? To know what a, a, a lamb's next steps in discipleship might be. To do this effectively, to feed and to lead, a pastor must know his flock, not just their names, a pastor needs to know their stories, their hurts, their pains, to know their desires, their tendencies, how to care for them. In fact, th this, uh, when I preach, I'm not just like coming to the scripture and say, here's what God says. I'm saying, here's what God says, and how does this connect to the people that God has entrusted to me? To preach effectively, I have to know where my people are at, or, or any pastor for that matter. And so what this means is that Sunday mornings is not enough. Right, to see you for an hour on Sunday mornings is not enough. And I can't be friends with everybody in, in a real deep and intimate way, but I want 
to know you. And so I am always open to an invitation. I, I hope to be uh, a presence in your living room, around your dining room table. In fact, if you're willing to allow the chaos of my household invade your space, we would almost every time accept an offer because I, as a pastor, desire to know you. See, pastors must cultivate relationships beyond acquaintances. And, and even as our church grows, this is impossible to do with everybody. But I, I get to know you through your MC leaders. They, they share with me what you are going through and how I can minister to them or how I can equip them to minister to you. And so in this way, the pastor has to know, cultivate these relationships, how to be among the people, be with the flock. And as a pastor feeds, leads, knows the flock, flock as an expression of his love. The pastor protects because love will always defend. See, in biblical times, a pastor carried a staff with him, and this served as a protection tool in two ways. One, it thwarted off outside predators, right? When the wolves or the bears would come along, the shepherd basically had a single weapon to whack whatever predator would come along. David did it. He, he, that's why David was not afraid of Goliath, right? If you know that story, because he had faced bears and lions with his stick. So it's in that sense, a, a pastor thwarts off external predators and threats, bad doctrine, unqualified leaders. But the staff is also used for the shepherd to rein the sheep back in. Right, to keep them from hurting themselves. Right? If, if a sheep were to get too close to the ledge, he would use that, that shepherd's crook to bring them back into the fold. And so it's in this way, the shepherd protects the flock from yourself in, in a sort of way. Now Peter knows that th th this responsibility is a challenging task and without relying on the grace of God, there are many, many snags for pastors, just like there are with every Christian. There's always the temptation toward duty, not delight. There's always the temptation of seeking your own comfort or your own glory. There's the temptation of becoming slothful and lazy. That, that's true of any Christian, right? Right? But especially so for pastors, and this is why there are so many stories of pastors who are cold, abusive, manipulative, domineering. And Peter knows about these sinful tendencies, and he is likely to have faced them himself. And so he urges these other pastors here in verse 2. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. He's saying not to do it because you're forced to, not, not out of compulsion, not because it's a box you have to check, but to do it willingly. To do it, to do it out of compulsion is to empty the job of its joy. It's like this, uh, this is what I was thinking about. What, uh, I traditionally don't like snow. And so when it snows, I kind of grumble under my breath, but every now and then I was like, man, this really is pretty. But when there's snow, there comes along the responsibility of scooping the, the sidewalks, right? And there's some times where it's just like, man, I do not. It's like, it's negative 32 below. I am not going out there, right? And you just know that you have to. Otherwise, the city people are going to come knock on your door. Your neighbors get really mad at you or whatever. But there's every once in a while this time where it's like, 
it's so beautiful, like I want to do it. And the thing is, like, like when you're doing it out of compulsion, you, you usually rush through it, you do a sloppy job, it, it doesn't look very good, you, you just don't care. But, but those times where it's like, you know what, I want to do this. I, I, I think I'm going to find some delight in this. You put your headphones in, you get bundled up, you do the whole thing. It's, it's a lot of fun, maybe, sometimes. But in those times, it's, it's actually a delight. It's, the responsibility is there, but it's actually a delight. It's a joy Joy to do it. And when it's done like that, it's usually done heartfelt. It looks a lot better usually. Right? It, it creates a better product. And when, when a pastor does his job out of compulsion, he tends to phone it in, to become irritated or annoyed with the responsibilities. And, and that happen, when that happens, he becomes careless in feeding, leading, knowing, and protecting the flock. And it causes great danger for his own soul and for the rest of the flock. But Peter says, to do it willingly as God would have you. See, if, if a pastor were to wake up and to see this is, a, this is a responsibility that God has given me and I get to do it today for his glory, it's a changed mindset. And Peter goes on to say, do not do it for shameful gain, but do it eagerly. Now, there are so many ways that power can be contorted or corrupted we see pastors or any person in leadership misuse their platform for financial gain, popularity, power, influence, to, to basically create their own little kingdom. But the thing is, some of the best pastors who have ever lived, you'll never hear of them. Some of the best pastors who have ever set foot on this world will be anonymous forever. Right? You, you might get to meet them in heaven, but even then, they're probably so humble and so kept to themselves. You won't know. It's because they have, have not done it for selfish gain or self-serving interest. They've done it eagerly toward God. And verse 3 goes on to say, goes to say this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples being examples to the flock. Now, here's one of the traps of having power of coercing or manipulating people, right? You know, you're probably familiar with the stereotypical parental line, do as I say, not as I do. That does not fly for church leadership. Whether it's living in community, living on mission, the spiritual disciplines, tithing, serving. Anytime a pastor calls the church to do these things without doing it for himself, this is problematic. Right, the pastor should be an example, somebody that, that, that the church can be like, you know what, I know he's not doing it perfect, but that's somebody that I aspire to be like. Now, all of these temptations, the self-glory, the power, the comfort, they offer something that will eventually fade away, right? If, if a pastor were to derail and to, to kind of give in to these things, the, the glory will fade for them. They give in to that, and they, they, those things give you nothing, a pastor will miss out on what's infinitely more valuable. But if they are to steward the grace of God well, to pastor well, verse four says this, and when the chief shepherd appears, you, the pastor, will receive an unfading crown of glory. Now this idea of crown, it's, it's a wreath. It, it would be in these times when, when Peter's writing, it would be familiar in the sense of like athletic or ath athletes who compete and they win. They, they're victors. They have this crown that's made up of, 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 uh, 
uh, I don't know, it's like leaves and flowers, it's a braided crown, and, and it's glorious right there in the moment. They're, they're ornament, you know, very fancy, but the thing about those things is they eventually wither and die. The, clo- the, the crown fades off. Even just think of the Olympics, like who won something in the Olympics eight years ago? Nobody remembers, right? even though it's made of gold. Nobody really remembers. You have to go to Wikipedia to find out. But for the pastor who receives this crown. Now, this, this crown is not uh, equivalent of, of salvation. Salvation is a gift that cannot be earned. This crown is a reward or, or an award for a, a person's faithful service to the Lord that is acknowledged and awarded. And one day, the joy of a pastor is not to receive the crown, but to give it back to Jesus Say, this isn't about me, this is about Jesus, to lay our crowns before his feet. But this, this crown is something that is beautiful. It will not fade, unlike those other crowns that were awarded for good deeds. It will not fade. It will be glorious forever. You're probably wondering, why does a pastor get the crown of glory, right? Can I get in on that? Yeah, you can. And you, and you don't have to become a pastor to get in on it. Here's how. Verse 5 tells you how you get in on this. It says, likewise. <laughs> likewise. Now he's saying here, in the same way that pastors receive this crown of glory, now he's going to talk to the younger people of the church. And this isn't just age-wise younger people. These are people who are not elders in that sense. The elders and the younger, right? So you can be, you can be 80 years old and not an elder, and Peter's still referring to you. And here is how you likewise receive the crown of glory. He says, be subject to the elders. This is how you receive the crown of glory. Be subject to the elders. Come under their leadership. Trust them. Follow them. Learn from them. Endear them, endear them like love them, and learn how to endure them because they're going to mess up. They're not going to be perfect. See, this is not some sort of power play for pastors to say, you know what, get in line. You guys need to kind of get together and make my life easy. This isn't about not creating waves. See, any pastor who uses this, this text in that way mishandles this text and doesn't understand the role of pastor at all. This is, in fact, a damnable ex- uh, 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 offense. There are people who come to Jesus and say, hey, we did all this stuff. We did all this stuff for you. They may have been church leaders. And she says, I didn't, I didn't know you. This is a a twisting of God's word because to be an elder, to be a pastor, to be a shepherd is to be one who offers an invitation, not a demand. See, the invitation is this. Just as Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Or in other words, come with me as I take up my cross and come and die. Come along with me. That is the invitation of an elder. Trust me as I learn to trust Christ. See, when elders uh, uh, lead as God intends for them to do, they give a, a picture. It's a hazy picture, but they give a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to come under his leadership. See, pastors are meant to be Signposts pointing toward Jesus, the good shepherd, the chief shepherd. And while I'm prone or any pastor is prone to failure and temptation, I'm bound to hurt you at some point or let you down. Jesus cannot, Jesus 
will not. Jesus has not lost a single sheep. When one goes missing, he searches for it until he finds it. And he brings it back with the fold. Jesus feeds perfectly. He himself is our daily bread. He is the meal that we will come and feast on together here in a moment. That is his provision for us. He leads us. He's given us our conscience. He's given us the Holy Spirit that indwells in our heart to work in you right now, showing us what it looks like to live in community and on mission. What are our next steps? The Spirit is prompting that in us. Jesus knows us perfectly, better than anyone else in your life, he know, better than you know yourself. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows your biggest fears. He knows your temptations. He knows your desires. He knows what you're dreaming for. Jesus protects you more than you realize. He's protecting you from the predator's sin. He's ultimately become a shield for you, a fortress to, 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 to retreat in, to keep you safe from harm. He pulls your life from the pit. See, and Jesus does all of this joyfully, willingly, compassionately, not under compulsion, not for shameful gain, not to manipulate you into being some of like his minions. Jesus does this for you. He does it to restore you to life, to give you a future of hope, to give you salvation, to offer you glory that that. that transcends the suffering that you're in right now. Jesus is doing this to offer you himself. But here's the thing. Just as I will fail you as your pastor, it's bound to happen, probably already has, you will fail as well as being part of the flock. Your own desires will cause you to wander away from the fold of God. You you will peel away from the gospel. You'll, you'll, you'll avoid community. You'll become disengaged with mission. You're prone toward the temptation of duty and not delight. You're prone toward the temptation, just like pastors, of seeking comfort or self-glory. You're prone toward laziness. And you're likely to rebel against the godly leaders God has appointed to lead you, and in doing so, you rebel against Jesus, your chief shepherd. See, God has always wanted to be, Jesus has always wanted to be your shepherd. But oftentimes we aren't so keen on being his lambs. Right? We'd rather do our own thing, whether that's emerging ourselves in some sort of self-help or godless religion or completely turning away from God, rejecting him as our shepherd and sort of creating our own way, finding a new flock to join. And we sang it today in in Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Isaiah 53 echoes this, that all we like sheep have gone astray. There's not a single one of us who have stuck with the pack. See, we have forsook our shepherd and, and we, because of this, have earned ourselves to become forsaken. When we turn our back on God, say, you know what, I'm gonna go my own way. He has every right to say, be gone with you. But Jesus in his grace did not leave us on our own. He did not say, you know what? That's a pretty interesting decision you just made there. Good luck. 
right? He might give us some space. He might let us pursue this alternate life uh, apart from him, but you know what he's gonna do? He's, he's gonna seek you out. He's gonna pursue you. He's going to woo you back to himself as your good shepherd. He's gonna come after you. But this is what blows my mind. See, the chief shepherd, this is what he does to get you back, to bring you back into the fold. The good shepherd says, you know what? I'll become the lamb. I'll be the lamb, the perfect lamb that you could not be. I'll perfectly entrust myself to God. I'll stay near to him. I'll never wander. I'll obey his voice for you. And then I'm gonna be pushed out so that you can be brought back in. I'm going to be forsaken, right? That's what Jesus cried out on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was the lamb, the perfect lamb who was pushed out so imperfect lambs like you and me could be brought back in. Jesus swapped places with us. That's the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. And and when you see Jesus as that kind of shepherd, you delightfully trust in him. If that's the shepherd, the one who lays down his life for me, I'll give everything to him. I'm all in. See, that's the kind of shepherd Jesus is. He became the lamb that was slain for our sins so that we could be healed. Think about that. As, as lambs, if we're the ones who are wounded, we feel wounded by leadership. There is no one more wounded throughout all history than Jesus. More undeserving of hurt than him. And he graciously and willingly embraced that hurt so that you could be made well. He laid down his life so you could find healing and restoration in his little lamb. And see, when we believe this, when we see what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, this is the only way we're able to do what, he, what Peter calls us to do on the second part of verse five where he says, clothe yourselves, all of you. This is not just pastors or just members. This is everybody, pastors and members or non-pastors, all of you. Clothe yourself with humility toward one another for God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. See, this act of clothing yourself with humility, this is something, everybody's wearing clothes here right now, I hope. Just as you put clothes on every single day, put on humility toward one another. Pastors, be humble toward the flock. The flock, be humble toward your pastors. This is not a fashion trend. This is a way of living for the church. This humility, when we understand the gospel that that I don't deserve anything, I have nothing to boast about. There's no pastor. A pastor should never walk around with a swagger. A church member should never walk around with a swagger because they're nothing without Jesus. And so we must be humble. Right, that's what happens when you believe the gospel. It it cultivates humility and therefore we embrace humility toward one another. And here's the good news. That as you are humble, as you come empty-handed, I've got nothing to offer, I've got no swagger, I'm just a nobody. God gives his grace to you. He doesn't withhold it. He pours out his grace to you and he has done so in the most 
sincere way here at the Lord's table where, where, where we see Christ's body and his blood spilled for us to make us whole. This is the grace that God has for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus being both the good shepherd that we can trust, who's perfect in all his ways, that he has never ignored us or forsaken us, forsaken us. That he knows us, he, he's protecting us, he's feeding us, he's leading us. Father, help us to trust him as your sheep. We are not perfect at this. In fact, we, we are wanderers by nature. That sin has, the indwelling sin in us has this pull away from Jesus. And Father, we want to ask for your help to keep us tethered to you. Help us to see the good shepherd for who he is, one who lays down his life for his flock. And we would trust in him. And Father, as people who experience this grace, would you create a culture in our church like this uh, of leaders who lay down their life for the church and church who, who willingly comes under the servant leadership of its pastors. Father, would you do this work among us? In Jesus' name we ask, amen.